Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin, let's have a few moments of silent prayer. This is to give you the opportunity to make sure that you are in fellowship. Anyone who has trusted in Christ as Savior uh, cannot lose their salvation, but when we sin, we lose our fellowship with God, our rapport with God, uh, just like when a child disobeys parents. And to recover that fellowship, we confess sin simply in silent prayer, admitting or acknowledging uh, known sin to God the Father, and instantly he forgives us of those sins and cleanses us from all unrighteousness, even the sins we don't mention. So we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're so thankful we can come together this evening and to be reminded about your plan and purposes for human history, to be reminded of your grace and how you have supplied everything for us in this church age, that your grace is so magnificent it's beyond anything that we can imagine, anything that we can fathom. Uh, we cannot comprehend its extent. It is beyond anything we could ever articulate. And, Father, yet we are its beneficiaries, and it is because of your grace that we have eternal salvation because of what Christ did on the cross. Now, Father, as we continue our study of your plan for the ages, we pray that you will help us to understand the issues that are brought up that we might clearly and, and precisely uh, define your word and divide your word uh, so that we can apply it as it should be applied and as you intended it to be applied. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, as I pointed out when we started this study, we have time for questions and answers. And there have been a couple of questions that came in last time that were uh, good questions, and they came in right at the end, and so we didn't get to them. But if any questions come up uh, tonight along the way, um, you got your microphone there, Bryce? You all ready to go? Okay, good. All right. So we're continuing tonight on our study of the New Covenant, the study of the New Covenant. And this is found as the core passage, the central passage for the New Covenant is in Jeremiah 31, 31 to 33. As I pointed out last time, this is the only place where the New Covenant is identified as a New Covenant. I didn't say that this is the only place that talks about a new covenant because I think that what this says about the new covenant is said in other places about what is called the covenant of peace or an eternal covenant but not called a new covenant. The reason I emphasize that is that 
one of the questions that came in had to do with uh, uh, this identification, this being the only place it's identified as a new covenant. And uh, the question was, doesn't it make sense that the new covenant would only be mentioned once in the Old Testament since Christ in his first advent came to offer the kingdom to Israel, which was a real offer, and if accepted, no new covenant would have been needed? No, that's a misunderstanding. Uh, it's, uh, the new covenant identifies it. Uh, this is the only place it identifies it by name, but not the only place it talks about it, and it has nothing to do with the contingency because this is a promise to Israel that the old covenant, which is the Mosaic covenant, would be replaced by the new covenant, and the new covenant would come into effect. And and as we pointed, I, I pointed out in going through the various scriptures, that these three covenants, the land covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant, will all come into, uh, will all be inaugurated and be fully applied when the Lord Jesus Christ returns as as the Messiah. And we see this in this particular chart. The Old Testament gives us promises, and in the future they are fulfilled. So we have the promises in the Old Testament made and then promises fulfilled in the future. Now, in this addition to the chart, we have the plan, God's plan of the ages, the Old Testament moving from the time of the patriarchs, and the time of Moses through the theocracy of the judges and First Samuel into the monarchy, the exile, the restoration, and then Christ coming, followed by the church and the millennium. Now, the old te- in the Old Testament, we have the giving of the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis. It's, it's summarized in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, also given in Genesis 15, uh, where it is the sacrifice is made that's the foundation for the covenant, the sign of the covenant given in Genesis 17. It's reiterated by God to Abraham many other times, to Isaac and to Jacob, and this becomes a foundation. Three points, land, seed, and blessing. The land part, God promised a specific piece of real estate to Israel bounded by the uh, river of Egypt, the, uh, and the Euphrates River, and the, the the Great Sea, which would be the Mediterranean Sea, all that land God gave to to Israel. Now that touches on another uh, question that came in. Let me see if I can. Um, uh, first part of the question: Were the full boundaries of the land covenant as given to Abraham meant to be established under the conquest generation? And the answer to that would be yes, that was the intent. The reason they didn't uh, conquer all the land that God had given is because they began to compromise with the inhabitants. That's clear from Judges chapter 1. As, they, as the conquest advanced, they began to compromise on the uh, uh, holy war that God had, had called for in terms of the uh, complete annihilation of the Canaanite inhabitants so that after a point, they so compromised with the Canaanite inhabitants that they weren't fighting them anymore. They were intermarrying with them, and they just, uh, it, it was like they advanced so far, and then they just didn't trust God to go the whole way. So Israel has never conquered or fully commanded, fully controlled all of the land that God originally promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Then we have the second covenant. That real estate covenant is not fulfilled until the millennial kingdom when Jesus returns. 
Then the second covenant, the Davidic covenant, is God's promise to David that a descendant of his would eternally sit on the throne. There would be an eternal house, eternal dynasty, eternal throne. And this is outlined in Second Samuel uh, chapter 7 as we studied. And this, again, is, uh, is fulfilled through Jesus, but not until he comes to sit on the throne of David as the Messiah, as the reigning Messiah when he returns at the second coming. And so uh, a question came in because I'd mentioned that David's rule over uh, Israel in the uh, millennial kingdom. Is that related to the Davidic covenant? And no, that's not spelled out in the Davidic covenant. We don't really learn that until we get into passages in, in Ezekiel. Then we have the new covenant, which is what we're studying now, which is the foundation is laid, the foundation for the new covenant is the death of Christ on the cross. But the new covenant, as it's laid out in the stipulations given in Scripture, does not come into effect until the second coming. Because the foundational sacrifice has been made, it is applied in terms of blessings to the present time. But we're not living in the time of the new covenant because, as I pointed out in the in the previous uh, class, those conditions aren't met at all today. Uh, conditions such as every uh, believer has so indwelt by the Holy Spirit in a way different from today that there's no need for uh, the Jews to be taught. It's primarily focused on the house of Israel and house of Judah. Um, as so- somebody pointed this out, which I thought was a great connection to make, is that in Isaiah chapter 2, the Gentiles, nations in the millennial kingdom, come to Jerusalem to learn about God. But the Jews are told that no one will need to even teach their neighbor about God because they will all intuitively, inherently know all of these things and that all Jews are going to be saved uh, in the millennial kingdom. There's none that will not trust in Jesus as their Messiah. So that takes us up to kind of where we are. We ended last time. One thing I didn't I alluded to last time, but I didn't go to this passage, is in Isaiah 11, 11, and 12. Now, if you have your Bible, turn there. This is the key passage here. But I want to look at the context. So often it's important to examine the context surrounding these verses that I put up because they set the stage for what is being said. And in Isaiah chapter 11, in the verses preceding this, we have a focus upon the coming of the Messiah. Verse 1 says, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse. Jesse was David's father. Jesse, is, as it were, the Davidic house has been cut down to a stump. And out of that stump, a new branch grows. And this branch, that terminology, the branch of Jesse, that's used uh, here in the second part of verse 1, a branch shall grow out of his roots. That's a reference to the Messiah. Uh, the rod from the stem of Jesse is a reference to the Messiah. And uh, verse 2 talks about the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And this is, again, all of this is talking about the Messiah. And then we have the characteristics of the Messianic reign. If you look at verse 5, uh, talking about the Messiah, This branch that comes forth, righteousness, shall be the belt of his loins, and faithfulness, the belt of his waist. 
talking that this is characteristic of the reign of the Messiah. It will be a righteous reign. Uh, verse 6 says, The wolf shall also lie down with the lamb, shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion, and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. And so talking about this is a totally different uh, scenario than what we have in the world today. They curse, at least as it impacts man's relation to the animal kingdom, and the antagonism between an animals is going to be rolled back. That's not going to be in effect during the millennial kingdom. So what we see here and the lead-up to this sets the stage for the coming of the millennial kingdom in the future. And then we read in verse 11, It shall come to pass in that day. What day? The day that this is the kingdom is established. It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people who were left. Key terminology, the second time and the remnant. Now he says, in verse 11, this is the second time that God recovers them from and lists several uh, nations, Assyria and Egypt, Pathros and Cush. These are located in, um, Cush is located in uh, North Africa from Elam and Shinar. That's in the lower uh, uh, Mesopotamian Valley area. From Hamath and the islands of the sea, that's Greece and everything to the west out past the uh, west of the Mediterranean. That's covered under the general term, the islands of the sea, as that's used in the scripture. So this is a recovery from all of these places. Now, at the end of the Babylonian captivity, remember you had the first, deep, the first scattering was the northern kingdom, and they're scattered all over Assyria. And their they, they, they're scattering is so, uh, so far-flung far that they're often referred to as the Ten Lost Tribes. That's really a misnomer because many of the people, who the Jews who lived in the northern kingdom, fled the northern kingdom, fled from Israel in the north to Judah in the south as the Assyrians were advancing on them. And so they maintained their identity. They knew who they were. And uh, even to this day, you have Jews who know that they're from one of those tribes. Uh, there were many Jew Jews who were scattered in the Assyrian Empire who probably lost their identity, but uh, uh, they're, they're scattered far and wide. They're, they, Jewish communities have shown up in, in India, in China, in all, all of these different areas in the uh, not just the Middle East but uh, towards Asia itself that are the result of these communities that never returned uh, back to back to Israel. So this is talking about a, a, a massive return. At the end of the second, uh, I mean, excuse me, at the end of the exile, there, the first return occurs under, under Zerubbabel in 538, and it's about 45,000 Jews. There are a couple of other returns that occur under Ezra and Nehemiah over the next 150 years, and they never amount to a huge number, and they're coming back from Babylon. There are some that return once they reestablish the uh, temple, which is the sec second temple uh, under, under Zerubbabel. There are others that return, and by the time you get to the time of Christ, uh, you had a sizable Jewish community, but it didn't even amount to probably more than a third 
of worldwide Jews. So it's not a worldwide return that takes place uh, prior to the coming of Christ. If you look at verse 12, verse 12 says, He, that's referring to God, will set up a banner for the nations. This has the idea of a huge invitation, as it were, and this is an allusion to the Messiah who's a protection. He will set up a banner for the nations and will assemble the outcasts of Israel. These are those who have been scattered and gathered together the dispersed of Judah. So you have a parallel between the outcasts of Israel, the northern kingdom, and the dispersed of Judah, the southern kingdom, from the four corners of the earth. Now, that's a key phrase because you don't have a return of Jews from the four corners of the earth at any point to this day. It, it is happening in our generation. They are coming back from the four corners of the earth. But until the first Aliyah, which began in the 1880s, and you begin to have Jews returning uh, from Russia and from Eastern Europe, and uh, that was the beginning, and you've had numerous Aliyahs or, or migrations of Jews back to Israel since. Until the last hundred years, you didn't have this massive return. Today, we have almost 50% of Jews in the world. We're at about 48% to 49% of worldwide Jews now live in Israel. That's massive. I believe that's a, a, a either fulfillment or pre-fulfillment of prophecy, setting the stage for the second coming which is at the end of the tribulation. It's not has nothing to do, uh, well, it, it, has, it doesn't have anything to do with the rapture. It has to do with the beginning of the tribulation, rather. And so it's setting the stage for that. Now, that, is the, that, fir, that would be the first return. This verse is talking about the second return. The second return is a worldwide return that occurs when Israel is recovered at the end of the tribulation. Now, that's the second return. That means there can only be how many returns in history, worldwide returns? Two. That's the second one that comes at the end of the tribulation. So when's the first one? Well, it seems to me that what we're seeing now is the first one. So that's why that's significant. Last time I also concluded by looking at Romans eleven twenty-five to 27 as a New Testament reference to the New Covenant where it's established that there will be this universal salvation or deliverance of Israel and their material prosperity in the land. And I want to go back and look at that verse very briefly before we go on. In this section, Paul concludes his section of Romans 9 to 11, which is a focus on, the, on, on Israel and God's plan for Israel. And he concludes in verses 25 to 27, saying, I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. A mystery is something that hadn't been revealed in the scriptures before, lest you be wise in your own opinion. He's talking to primarily Gentile believers. He says that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And the grammar is really interesting there. The Greek word until indicates that when this condition is met, the fullness of the Gentiles, then the blindness ends and that there be a full openness on the part of Israel uh, to the gospel. And then he says, and so in this manner that I'm about to tell you about, it's a forward-looking word. He's saying, and thus in this way, this, this way all Israel will be saved. How will, how will this occur? The deliverer will come out of Zion 
and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. And that idea is that, that when the Messiah comes, he turns back ungodliness and apostasy from, uh, from Israel, concluding by saying, for this is my covenant with them. God is saying, this is when I will fulfill my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Now, this idea that he says, and so in this manner all Israel will be saved, this isn't talking about individual justification, individual deliverance from eternity in the lake of fire. That's not what it means. Nowhere else in Romans does the word saved refer to that. Remember in Romans 5, um, 5, 9 and 9 through 11, Paul said, we have been justified, looking back to the point of, of uh, when we trust Christ as Savior, we have been justified in the past that we shall be saved in the future. In Romans, Paul is very careful to distinguish justification from salvation. Justification is what secures our eternity in heaven and frees us from an eternal destiny in the lake of fire. Salvation often focuses on the culmination of that process when we're face-to-face with the Lord and and in heaven. It also has, in several contexts, Romans 10, uh, 11 being one of them, quote from the Old Testament from Joel 2, that salvation refers to physical deliverance. The, the time frame for the fulfillment of 1126 is when Israel is rescued by the Messiah from the armies of the Antichrist. So I believe this is talking about uh, that physical rescue of Israel when the believing Jews have fled uh, into the uh, hills of Judea and across into what is now modern Jordan, the area of Basra and Petra, and that they will there call upon the name of the Lord, and Jesus the Messiah will come and rescue them and deliver them. I believe that that's what 11.26 is talking about, is because Paul consistently avoids using the word saved for uh, justif- as a synonym for justification. Okay, just a pause there. Any questions so far? Coming in from email. Okay, we're clear so far. Okay, now let's look at the relationship of the church to the new covenant. The relationship of the church to the new covenant. In several places, the New Testament talks about the new covenant in the context of the church. This gets a little confusing for some people because we have a Bible that's divided into the Old Testament or covenant and the New Testament or covenant. The word translated testament is the same word for that's translated covenant. So if we're now living in the New Testament period, doesn't that mean that we're living under the new covenant? It sure sounds that way because of how we use that term to describe uh, what we have as the church age documents, the gospels, acts, and the epistles. But that's a misunderstanding of how this terminology is used, as I'll point out. So there are several places where the new covenant is related to the church, and as I pointed out last time, in every place where the new covenant is is talked about in terms of who it describes, who's involved, it's always between God on the one hand and the house of Israel and the house of Judah on the other hand. There's never a mention of a covenant with the church, and this, but this is an issue for people, so we want to take it very carefully and look at these verses. First place that we have a mention of the new covenant occurs at Passover 
as our Lord is celebrating the Seder with his disciples the night before he went to go to the cross. And while he's observing the Seder meal, as we state every time we have the Lord's table, he takes two of the elements and gives them new meaning. He goes through, it's a normal, traditional Jewish Seder, but when he comes to the bread, he breaks the bread and gives it a new meaning. He says, this is the uh, my body which is given as a substitute for you. Then he comes to the cup, the third cup, which is called the cup of redemption. Now, how, these terms developed uh, not because of sp- uh, scriptural mandate that we know. We don't really know where these terms and some of these uh, added elements took place. Some of them took place during the uh, first temple. Some took place during the second temple. Some of them obviously were authorized by prophets in the Old Testament. We just don't know. That's an argument from silence. But this it's this third cup that's called the cup of redemption. That's the Messiah's mission from the Old Testament, from passages like Isaiah 53, several others. He's the redeemer of Israel. So he says, this cup, he's taken the cup, and he says, this is the new covenant in my blood. He identifies his death on the cross. That's the significance of the phrase, in my blood. Scripture talks about the blood of Christ, the shed blood of Christ. All of these are terms that are somewhat metaphorical. That is, they are not talking about the literal blood of Christ. They use the phrase shed blood or uh, someone's uh, shed his blood or the blood of someone is a metaphor, metaphorical way or descriptive way of talking about their death. Genesis chapter 9 in the Noahic Covenant, we read, anyone who sheds man's blood... By man, his blood shall also be shed. So this is a foundation for understanding the biblical emphasis on capital punishment for murder. Does that mean that it only applies when somebody's blood is literally shed, when somebody bleeds to death? No. In fact, when in our studies of idioms, our studies of figures of speech, we, re- we realize that when you use a figure of speech, the, the literal meaning of the terms is no longer significant. It takes on a, the phraseology takes on its own meaning and has its own uh, own meaning. For example, if someone uh, suddenly becomes embarrassed or shy and they can't really articulate what they want to say, we might say that the cat's got your tongue. There's no cat involved. Nobody's holding a literal tongue. It's just a figure of speech, a way of saying that somebody's not talking. They're afraid to speak. So that's the same thing with blood. So the phrase here is connecting the cup of wine, and it was always wine. Even to this day, it's wine. Uh, Baptists, probably Methodists, in the early uh, 19th century were teetotalers. There is... um, in, in the, there was a saying in the Old West that if a preacher came, if he had a, a flask of whiskey in his saddlebag, he was a Baptist, a hard-shell Baptist. If he didn't, he was a Methodist. Uh, the Methodists were the teetotalers, not the Baptists. It sort of reversed itself in the 20th century. But that's the way it was historically. And, um, and so as a result of that, 
you had a lot of Methodists in the mid-19th century revival with the emphasis on temperance and prohibition and all these things that were being uh, touted. They just couldn't stand the fact that most churches were using wine in communion. And, you know, this is evil alcohol. So a man by the name of Welch developed a methodology for uh, preventing grape juice from fermenting. That's Welch's grape juice. There's your, that's the rest of the story. And so the um, churches at that point began to use substitute grape juice for wine. Uh, I've often told the story that I went to a church in Dallas, a large church pastored by uh, one of the professors at Dallas Seminary, and they had an evening service. I hadn't been to this church before. I went with a couple of friends to the evening service, and it was on the... Uh, uh, pretty much following the the traditions of a of a, a Plymouth Brethren type church, different people would stand up at different times and teach. Then they would sing hymns, and it was a rather unguided service, but rather orderly. And a lot of the men in the church were seminary trained, so uh, it was an opportunity for different men in the church to teach. And then they would always observe the Lord's table every single Sunday night, and they passed the elements afterwards. As a, we were driving home, one of my friends said. That was wine. I said, no, it wasn't. That was grape juice. He said, no, 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 that was wine. I said, you've never had a drop of alcohol in your life. How would you know? We got into this intense argument. And what we came, I came to find out is that at this church, their tradition was that the inner circles of the communion tray were wine for those who wish to have wine, and the outer circles, in case someone was alcoholic or had a problem with wine, were grape juice. And I had taken grape juice, and he had taken wine, and so we argued for quite a while over the fact that he didn't know what wine tasted like or couldn't distinguish it from grape juice. That was great fun. But anyhow, so it's the deep red color of the wine that reminds us of the color of blood. So what we have here is a double imagery. The, the, the wine is a picture of shed blood. But the shed blood is a picture itself of the spiritual death of Christ, which is when he's separated from God the Father on the cross between 12 noon and 3 p.m. That's when God the Father poured out upon Jesus Christ the sins of the world, and he paid the sin penalty. After it was completed, the Apostle John says, after it was finished, to telestai, meaning after it was all completed, perfect tense verb indicating it was over and done with, after it was completed, he says, Tetelestai, Jesus said, Tetelestai. He wants us to get the point that, that Jesus had already finished and completed everything before he died physically. And then it was after his death physically that the Roman soldier pierced his side with his spear and out came uh, blood and water, the Apostle John says. It was a separation of the blood into uh, into serum and red corpuscles, indicating that death had already occurred b- before the, the spear thrust. When you're hanging on the cross and your uh, your uh, insides are being, all your intestines are being pushed up against your diaphragm, that what happens after you suffocate is your blood separates above your diaphragm, and then when that's pierced, what comes out looks like blood or water. Now, what Christ is saying here is this cup is the new covenant of my blood. His death on the cross establishes or is the foundational sacrifice 
for the new covenant. It doesn't mean that the new covenant is going into effect. It doesn't mean the new covenant is operational. It just means the foundation, the sacrifice for it is accomplished. One of the things we see from looking at the Old Testament where you have the land covenant given, but nothing is fulfilled. The Davidic covenant is given, nothing is fulfilled. The new covenant was given, but nothing was fulfilled. So certain things can happen without things being enacted or brought into effect. Second passage, and this is the one that most people go to in 1 Corinthians, uh, or excuse me, that's the third one most people go to. The first one, 1 Corinthians 11.25, is simply a repetition by Paul of what Jesus said at the Last Supper. And, and he's quoting what the Lord said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood, and so it's not adding anything new to the, to the topic. The third use in 2 Corinthians 3.6 states, who also, that is referring to God, who also made us ministers of the new covenant. So the question is, in what sense is a Christian a minister of the new covenant? And I would answer this by saying that the new covenant goes operational in the future when the kingdom is established. We are going to rule and reign with Christ in that future kingdom. Therefore, our life today is in preparation for that kingdom. What we are announcing today is that there is a future kingdom, and as believers, we need to be preparing for it because when we are evaluated at the judgment seat of Christ, then um, those rewards that we are given directly affect our roles and responsibilities in the kingdom. So today we're teaching people. I'm teaching you about the kingdom. I am a minister of the kingdom. That doesn't mean the kingdom is in effect now. It doesn't mean the new covenant is in effect now. But it does mean that that's what we're looking forward to. That's what we're in training for. And that's what we're preparing for. So it doesn't mean or imply that the new covenant covenant is operational yet. Hebrews 7, uh, 22 and 8, 6 are some other passages. Hebrews says much more about the new covenant Then other passages of Scripture, it emphasizes that Christ is the mediator of a better covenant. It's in Hebrews 7 that that the writer of Hebrews indicates that the priesthood, the Aaronic priesthood, the priesthood of Aaron from the Old Testament, is inferior to the priesthood of Christ. And that is because Christ came and establishes a new and better covenant. This leads up to the passage in Hebrews 8, where the writer of Hebrews quotes from Jeremiah 31, 31 to 38. So let's just look at a, a couple of these passages. Uh, Hebrews 7:22 states, So much the more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. It's not in effect yet, but his death is the foundational sacrifice, and that's a guarantee that the new covenant will eventually come into effect. It will become operational. In Hebrews 8, 6, we read, But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, referring to Christ in his advent to heaven. Uh, as he ascended to heaven, he's seated at the right hand of the Father. He is our high priest in heaven. That's the more excellent ministry. But as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. What this is saying is that that the promises and prophecies of the Old Testament related to the to the uh, Messiah were fulfilled at the first 
coming with the sacrifice that was made by Christ on the cross. That establishes. It's not that, that the covenant being enacted on a better promise doesn't mean it's gone into effect or gone operational. Because as I pointed out, as we go, went through all those Old Testament passages last week, none of those characteristics are true today. There are things that may be similar, but the totality is not true today. And we've learned from also by comparing those passages that it emphasized that when the new covenant goes operational, a regenerate Israel will be restored to the land with a Davidic king on the throne. We don't have a Davidic king on the throne. Israel is not restored to the land as a regenerate nation. Therefore, it can't be, we can't be in any way, shape, or form under the new covenant. Hebrews 9.15, we read, For this reason he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. See, it's connecting the new covenant and its fulfillment to the reception of that eternal inheritance. That does not come for the church-age believers until the judgment seat of Christ, and it's not activated until Jesus returns and establishes his kingdom. Hebrews 10.16 talks about another covenant. I mean, the same covenant uses the term covenant again. Hebrews 10.16, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws upon their heart. So this is, we don't see that today where God's laws are upon the heart of every Jew. This is not true today. And on their mind, I will write them. That is not uh, in, in effect today. So th- that is a quote from the Old Testament talking about what it will be like when the new covenant is established. Hebrews 10.29 states, How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and insulted the Spirit of grace. The blood, term blood of the covenant there simply refers to the death of Christ on the cross, which is the foundation for the new covenant. Then we come to Hebrews 12.24. Jesus, again, third time now, is described as the mediator of a new covenant, and it's a reference to his sacrifice because there's the mention there of the sprinkled blood uh, which speaks better than the blood of Abel, going back to that first murder in Genesis chapter chapter 4. And then we come to Hebrews 13.20, the last message uh, mention of a covenant in Hebrews. Now the God of peace who brought up the, from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus Christ our Lord. So again, it's talking about just the death of Christ that established or, or provided the foundation for the new covenant. So here's the point. When we look at Scripture, sometimes we read things into we have preconceived notions and we read things into what the text says and, and as if we're living in the time of the New Covenant. But when you look at these passages, the only thing that they emphasize for the present time is that the sacrifice that's the foundation of the New Covenant has been established. When we look at the Old Testament passages and nothing's been changed or modified in terms of those prophecies, those prophecies aren't fulfilled until Jesus returns and establishes a literal kingdom in the land that God promised along with the Davidic, uh, Davidic monarch. So in, in conclusion with this, we go back to our chart, and what we see is that uh, 
each of these three covenants that are expansions on the Abrahamic covenant, the uh, land covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant, find their fulfillment at the beginning of the millennium. Okay? I don't know if anybody has any uh, questions at this point. This would be a good time for questions. You got a question? Okay. Effie? Could you possibly say that the church is a fulfillment of the new covenant in part? No. Not at all? No, I'll get, I'll get into that in a minute. But it's not a partial fulfillment. Yeah, she was asking the question, um, is the church a fulfillment in part of the new covenant? Because there's no part that, you, you weren't here last time, but there's no part that it would fulfill. But there's more to that, and I'm going to get into that in just a minute over the next couple of weeks. Mike? I get into this right now, but um, I, can you help me understand how the church relates to Israel in the Millennial Kingdom? Because at the point of the Millennial Kingdom, the, the Jews will have accepted Jesus as the Messiah, which is what right now constitutes us being members of the church. Right. We'll, go, we'll go into that in detail, but the short answer is, that the church, that, that Israel, the question he was asking is to clarify the relationship between the church and Israel in the millennial kingdom. The Israel has an earthly destiny. They have an earthly kingdom and they will be on the earth. You will have a, uh, regenerate Israel during the millennial kingdom. You will have a new, uh, a, the millennial temple will be operational with millennial sacrifices. We'll get into all those details when we get to that, that dispensation. The, the, the church is, is in Christ and everything will flow from, because of our position in Christ, we are in our resurrection bodies and we are glorified and we are ruling and reigning. We're part of the theocratic administration during the messianic kingdom. So we're going to be ruling and reigning probably over the nations during the millennial kingdom. Uh, Israel, uh, then you have the Old Testament saints and Jewish tribulation saints that are in resurrection body, and I believe they'll be involved in um, the administration of Israel. During the uh, during the millennial kingdom, so that's the short answer. We'll get into more details on that when we get there. Okay, Bryce. Yeah, we have a uh, <clears throat> question from Tony in Kearney, in Nebraska. Given the mass confusion produced mainly by Reformed theology concerning the relationship of the body of Christ to the new covenant, how do you or do you teach the slight distinction between the terms covenant and testament? Given that the Greek word for both English words is the same, what do you make of the authorized version's non-use of the phrase New Covenant, but New Testament in Matthew 26, 28, and all the Pauline epistles to the church? Well, they all relate, they, all, as he points out, the Greek word is diatheke. The old uh, authorized version translated that testament. You know, I really am not familiar. I can go back and look at that for next time. Uh, and see what the distinction is there between testament and covenant. Um, I know there's some minor distinction. I've read that at some point a long time ago, a uh, long time ago, but uh, haven't really focused on that. But we're, we're, the term, biblical term is covenant, uh, which is the most pr- more precise definition. I think describing the 
Hebrew Bible and the New Testament as testament is, is really confu- uh, confusing, and it may even have some roots in replacement theology, but I'll check that out. Anything else? Nope? Okay. All right. Here's our chart. We're looking at the time that all of these covenants come into effect. Now, how? one of the things that we ought to just clarify here, because people come from different backgrounds, basically there have been questions about how to interpret all of these different passages. And there's a couple of different views. In covenant theology, which is the theology that came out of Reformed theology. Now, that may be a new term for some of you. Reformed theology refers to that aspect of the Protestant Reformation that was influenced by John Calvin and the school at Geneva. And so you had, they referred to themselves as Reformers, and you have the Reformed Church as opposed to those who followed Luther in uh, Germany and in Scandinavia who were Lutherans and those who uh, later were Baptists. So you had the Reformed Church, and you had different branches, and they set up. They had still had state churches, so you had uh, the, the French Reformed and Dutch Reformed. Uh, you had uh, a lot of Reformed emphasis in Anglican uh, theology. You had the Scottish Reformed Church, which later develops into Presbyterianism and Congregationalism, and that had to do with how they understood church government. Uh, so the Reformed theology basically covers that whole realm of theology that traces itself back to the theology of John Calvin. And in covenant theology, we have a view of interpreting Scripture that is not consistently literal. Going back to the beginning when I started uh, introducing dispensationalism, there are three key elements to dispensationalism. Uh, the first is a consistent literal her- hermeneutic. Key word is consistent. Second is this leads to understanding a distinction between God's plan for Israel and God's plan for the church. These are two distinct entities. This is one reason you don't have a partial fulfillment of the new covenant in the church is because everywhere the new covenant is mentioned, it's a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It's not with the church. Um, Then you have... um, so within covenant theology, you have this replacement idea that the church replaced Israel. Israel rejected Jesus. They're the Christ killers. Incidentally, one of the big news items that came out today was that the United Presbyterian Church USA uh, and their, their uh, economic uh, investment group voted for divestment. That's a nasty word that means that they're going to uh, take all the money that they have. Uh, they're not going to invest in any companies or anyone who invests positively in Israel. And it, it flows out of their replacement theology. I think the vote on their board was 45 to 10, which is a huge majority. Now, you've got to understand something about UPCAS, so that's the, United, that's the initials for the United Presbyterian Church USA, is this is the mainline denomination. They're members of the World Council of Churches. World Council of Churches has always been anti-Zionist, anti-Israel, uh, and that's the, always the seedbed for anti-Semitism. That doesn't mean that every one of them are anti-Semitic, but they hold to a form of a belief system that's the so- historic soil out of which anti-Semitic weeds have grown. And so this is part of, part of the problem. So it's not surprising 
that, that they, there are other conservative evangelical Presbyterian denominations that hold to replacement theology, but they wouldn't go that far. They're, they're, they're evangelical and they're not, uh, they, they accept the authority of Scripture. Uh, the United Presbyterian Church, like the United Methodist Church and like the United Church of Christ and, and the Episcopal Church of the U.S. has pretty much rejected biblical authority across the board. So the Old Testament has no authority for them. The Abrahamic Covenant has no authority for them. Uh, they basically have thrown out the authority of God for the authority of man, and they're running a true man-made religious system. And so it's, it, it's not surprising that they would take such a, a, a move against Israel. But anti-Semitism historically, ha- Christian anti-Semitism, has its roots in this kind of replacement theology and covenant theology held to this. Lutheran theology held to forms of replacement theology. Roman Catholic theology, going back to the about the third century with origin in the early church, an allegorical interpretation, held to a replacement theology. This was the the, the soil out of which Christian anti-Semitism historically, historically grew. Now, within covenant theology, they believe that Israel has no future at all because they rejected Jesus. God's rejected them, forgotten them. They're off the historical board. The only thing that matters is the new, what they call the new Israel, the spiritual Israel. And so, of course, we become the heirs of the new covenant. So if, you, if you've been influenced in any degree by, by covenant theology, then you believe that we're living under the new covenant because we're the spiritual Israel. But we're not spiritual Israel uh, at all. The term Israel is never used of non-ethnic Jews anywhere in the Bible. And so uh, there's one passage in Galatians, but it's a mixed congregation where Paul says, give greetings to the Israel of God, that is to the Jews of God that are there, the, the, the Christian Jews that are there in in the Galatian congregation. So that's the sort of the covenant theology, replacement theology view is that we're, the church is the spiritual Israel and so we're heirs to the new covenant. The second view is, is the view that we hold that insists that the scripture must be interpreted literally and that this covenant has to be made with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It is a covenant that God makes with the Jewish people, that is the outgrowth of the Abrahamic covenant. And on the basis of that, people are are blessed uh, worldwide because that will eventually be enacted because the foundational sacrifice has already been, been made. Now, there have been some ways in which uh, dispensationalists have understood this. In the old Schofield reference Bible, Schofield believed that there was one covenant but it had two aspects. One was for Israel, and uh, other aspects were for the church. The problem is that the Scripture never states or makes such a distinction, never says, well, these are for the church and these are for Israel. You don't have anything like that in in any of the verses we've looked at. Nothing distinguishes between Israel, some things for Israel, some things for the church. A second way in which... Uh, dispensationalists have tried to understand this, and this was popular in the mid-20th century, is that there were two new covenants. This was, there was, some of you have heard people teach that, that there was a new covenant for Israel and a new covenant for the church. Now, nowhere 
In any of these passages, does it ever say that God is making a new covenant with the church? He doesn't say anywhere that he makes a, a, new, a, a covenant with the church. It's not stated. So this was a theological deduction that had poor grounding exegetically because the scriptures that are used that indicate who the covenant partners are, just like your mortgage is a covenant. Who are the covenant partners? You and your mortgage holder. Your credit card, that's another covenant. Who are the covenant holders? You and and the bank that issued the, the credit card. So the, the new covenant is between God on the one hand and Israel and Judah on the other hand. And, and just like in the Old Testament, when God made a covenant with Abraham, he said, on the basis of our contract that I'm establishing between me and you, Abraham, I'm going to bless all the Gentiles out there. The new covenant is the expansion of that third paragraph in the uh, in the Abrahamic covenant, and God is saying on the basis of this new covenant with Israel and with Judah, I'm going to be able to bless all the Gentiles, I'm going to bless the church, I'm going to provide worldwide salvation on the basis of the sacrifice that is a foundation for the new covenant, but the new covenant doesn't go into effect. None of those uh, things that we saw last time, none of the characteristics are present today. There may be some things that are similar, but similar isn't identity. They're different. So the, we have to remember that whenever, if you were a Jew, and Paul's a Jew, Paul's writing to mixed congregations that are composed of uh, saved Jews, Messianic Jews. The writer of Hebrews is writing to a primarily Jewish uh, audience that when they heard the word new, new covenant, they would automatically be thinking of a literal fulfillment of Jeremiah 31. reason I make that point is there's nothing in any of these passages to qualify or change the meaning that's originally given in the Old Testament passages. So there's nothing new given to say that it's with somebody else or for somebody else. So the most consistent way of understanding this is that there's only new, one new covenant, just as there's only one Abrahamic covenant, one Palestinian covenant, or one Davidic covenant, that these others contain, contain promises both for physical blessing and spiritual blessings for Israel, and they also contain elements, or some of them contain elements for describing blessings for the Gentiles by association with the Jews. So the new covenant, just like these other covenants, is with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, and it describes blessings for the Jews, but also the extension of spiritual blessing to the Gentiles. And this is described in various other places in, uh, in the Scripture. Now, one last passage to go to here before we wrap up is in Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. Romans 11 is Paul's final chapter in this three-chapter section that talks about the fact that God's not through with Israel. God still has a plan for Israel. And God, and in the midst of this passage, uh, Paul uses an illustration to talk about uh, God's blessing. And he starts this in verse 23. Actually, it's earlier than that. Um, let's go back to verse, I was looking at the conclusion, going back to verse uh, 16 just to get the context. 
first, the first illustration he uses, he talks about a, a lump of dough that would be brought during first fruits. And he says, for if the first fruit is holy, that would be the very first product of the harvest. If that was ground into flour and then dough was made in bread, if the first fruit is holy, then the lump is also. In other words, if that initial part is sanctified, then that sanctifies the whole. And if the root is holy, that describes a tree. If the root is holy or set apart, so are the branches. Then he builds on this illustration using the picture of an olive tree. If some of the branches were broken off, so you have this picture of this olive tree, and you have the roots and the trunk and then the branches. This is a the, 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 the root... Some people think the root is the is Israel, or the root is the Scripture. The root is the Abrahamic covenant. What what Paul is describing here is blessing. Uh, the root is the Abrahamic covenant that provides blessing and uh, nourishment to the branches. But some of the branches can be broken off. They're not the natural branches. The natural branches describe the Jews who have a natural physical relationship to the Abrahamic covenant. Paul says, if some of the branches are broken off in you, that is you as Gentiles, if you being a wild olive tree were grafted in among them. So in agriculture, you can take uh, different trees. I've had some pictures before of a cherry tree and um, I took in Norwich, Connecticut, that where red blossom cherry blossom tree was grafted onto a white blossom cherry blossom tree outside the I think it was the first congregational church in Norwich. And so you get there at the right time of the spring, you've got half the tree's white blossoms and half of its pink blossoms. And you can do the same thing with a cherry tree. You have a nat- I mean, with, a, with an olive tree, you have a natural olive tree. You break off bla- branches and you graft in wild olive branches and they grow into the tree and they partake of the same roots and nourishment as the natural branches. And so the Gentiles are described as wild olive branches. Arnold Fruchtenbaum, by the way, married a Gentile, and he always referred to her as his wild olive branch. So um, what Paul says in developing this analogy, he says, you were grafted in among them and with them became a partaker of the root and the fatness of the olive tree. We participate in the blessing of the Abrahamic covenant. And Paul says, don't boast against the branches. Don't act like it's anything inherent in you that makes you special. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, the Abrahamic covenant, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said. Because of unbelief, they were broken off. That is the reason the Jews did not maintain this position of blessing with the Abrahamic covenant is because of unbelief. And so they are removed in discipline. They were broken off, and you stand by faith. Don't be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell severity, but toward you goodness. If you continue in his goodness, otherwise you also will be cut off. And so this is his picture here, is that the Abrahamic covenant then becomes the foundation for blessing for everyone in the world, for Jews and Gentiles, if on the basis of faith alone in Christ alone. So that summarizes the, the, these issues with the, with the new covenant. One of the things we're going to get to that's really important next time is dealing with some of the interpretational issues because 
in covenant theology where you do not be, where they do not believe in a literal future millennial kingdom they interpret certain key passages in a non-literal way and this uh, it really affects your interpretation in acts 2 and acts 3 and how you come up with their view that the church is the new recipient of the of the new covenant and why we're living under the new covenant and we have to go through very carefully some of these issues because you may not be aware of them, but they influence how many people read the scriptures. So we need to go through these and deal with some of those hermeneutical issues next time. And so we'll do that. Any other questions before I wrap up? Okay. All right. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this time when we can look at your word and understand that you have uh, given us such a a tremendous uh, blessing that's all due to your grace, due to your goodness toward us, And you have provided us such a magnificent blessing through Jesus Christ who died on the cross for our sins. He laid that uh, sacrifice for us, that foundation for the new covenant that has not yet come into effect but will in the future. And, Father, we pray that you will help us as we think through these issues very carefully to understand what your word says and how you have described these things that we may accurately handle your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.